Chapter 10 of Operation Outer Space by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Operation Outer Space. Chapter 10. The sun rose. Cochrane noted the time. It was fourteen hours since sunset. The local day would be something more than an earth day in length. The manner of sunrise was familiar. There was a pale gray light in the sky. It strengthened. Then reddish colors appeared, and changed to gold, and the unnamed stars winked out one after another. Presently the nearer hillside ceased to be black. There was light everywhere. Alicia, white and haggard, waited to see what the light would show. But there was heavy mist everywhere. The hill crests were clear, and the edge of the visible woodland and the top half of the ship's shining hull rose clear of curiously tinted, slowly writhing fog. But everything else seemed submerged in a sea of milk. But the mist grew thinner as the sun shone on it. Its top writhed to nothingness. All this was wholly commonplace. Even clouds in the sky were of types well known enough. Which was, when one thought about it, inevitable. This was a Sol-type sun, of the same kind and color as the star which warmed the planet Earth. It had planets like the sun of men's homeworld. There was a law, Bode's law, which specified that planets must float in orbits bearing such and such relationships to each other. There must also be a law that planets in those orbits must bear such and such relationships of size to each other. There must be a law that winds must blow under ordinary conditions, and clouds form at appointed heights and times. It would be very remarkable if Earth were an exception to natural laws that other worlds obey. So the strangeness of the morning to those who watch from the ship was more like the strangeness of an alien land on Earth than that of a wholly alien planet. The lower dawn mist thinned. Gazing down, Cochrane saw dark masses moving slowly past the ship's three metal landing fins. They were the beasts of the night, moving deliberately from their bedground to the vast plains inland. There were bunches of hundreds and bunches of scores. There were occasional knots of dozens only. From overhead and through the mist, Cochrane could not see individual animals too clearly, but they were heavy beasts and clumsy ones. They moved sluggishly. Their numbers dwindled. He saw groups of no more than four or five. He saw single animals trudging patiently away. He saw no more at all. Then the sunlight touched the inland hills. The last of the morning mist dissolved, and there were the dead bodies of two beasts near the base of the ship. Johnny Sims had killed them with his first panicky shots of the night. There was another dead beast a quarter mile away. Cochrane gave orders. Jones and Al could not leave the ship. They were needed to get it back to Earth, with full knowledge of how to make other starships. Cochrane tried to leave Babs behind, but she would not stay. Bell had loaded himself with a camera and film tape besides a weapon, before Cochrane even began his organization. Holden was needed for an extra gun. Alicia, tearless and despairing, would not be left behind. Cochrane turned wryly to Jameson. I don't think Johnny was killed, he said. He'd gotten a long way off before it happened anyhow. We've got to hunt for him. 
with beasts like those of last night, there'll naturally be other creatures to prey on them. We might run into anything. If we don't get back, you get to the lawyers I've had representing spaceways. They'll get rich off the job, but you'll end up rich, too. The best bet all around, said Jameson in a low tone, would be to find him trampled to death. I agree, said Cochrane sourly. But, apparently, the beasts don't stampede. Maybe they don't even charge, but just form rings to protect their females and young, like musk-oxen. I'm afraid he's alive, but I'm also afraid we'll never find him. He marshaled his group. Jones had walkie-talkies ready, deftly removed for the purpose from spacesuits nobody had used since leaving Lunar City, and Holden took one to keep in touch by. They went down in the sling, two at a time. Cochran regarded the two dead animals near the base of the ship. They were roughly the size of cattle, and they were shaggy, like buffalo. They had branching, pointed, deadly horns. They had hoofs, single hoofs, not cloven. They were not like any earth animal. But horns and hoofs will appear in any system of parallel evolution. It would seem even more certain that proteins and amino acids, and such compounds as hemoglobin and fat and muscle tissue, should be identical as a matter of chemical inevitability. These creatures had teeth, and they were herbivorous. Bell photographed them painstakingly. Somehow, said Cochrane, I think they'd be wholesome food. If we can, we'll empty a freezing locker and take a carcass for tests. Holden fingered his rifle unhappily. Alicia said nothing. Bab stayed close beside her. They went on. They came to another dead animal a quarter mile away. The ground was full of the scent and the hoof marks of the departed herd. Bell photographed again. They did not stop. Johnny Sims had been this way because of the carcass. He wasn't here now. They topped the next rise in the ground they saw two other slaughtered creatures. It was wholly evident now that these animals did not charge, but only stood their ground when alarmed. Johnny Sims had fired blindly when he blundered into their groupings. The last carcass they saw was barely two hundred yards from the one patch of woodland visible from the ship. Cochran said with some grimness, "'If his eyes had gotten used to the darkness,' he might have seen the forest and tried to get into it to get away from those animals. And if Johnny Sims had not stopped short instantly he reached the woods, and presumable safety, he would be utterly lost by now. There could be nothing less hopeful than the situation of a man lost on a strange planet, not knowing in what direction he had blundered on his first starting out. Even nearby, three directions out of four would be wrong. Farther away, the chance of stumbling on the way back to the ship would be non-existent. Alicia saw a human footprint on the trodden muck near the last carcass. It pointed toward the wood. They reached the wood, and search looked hopeless. Then, by purest chance, they found a place where Johnny had stumbled and fallen headlong. He'd leaped up and fled crazily. For some fifteen yards they could track him by the trampled dried small growths he'd knocked down in his flight. Then there were no more such growths. All signs of his flight were lost, but they went on. 
There were strangenesses everywhere, of which they could realize only a small part, because they had been city-dwellers back on earth. There was one place where trees grew like banyans, and it was utterly impossible to penetrate them. They swerved aside. There was another spot where giant trees like sequoias made a cathedral-like atmosphere, and it seemed an impiety to speak. But Holden reported tonelessly in the walkie-talkie, and assured Jones and Alan Jameson that all so far was well. They heard a vast commotion of chattering voices, and they hoped that it might be a disturbance of Johnny Sims causing. But when they reached the place there was dead silence. Only there were hundreds of tiny nests everywhere. They could not catch a glimpse of a single one of the nest's inhabitants, but they felt that they were peeked at from under leaves and around branches. Cochrane looked unhappy indeed. In cold blood he knew that Johnny Sims had left the ship in exactly the sort of resentful bravado with which a spoiled little boy will run away from home to punish his parents. Quite possibly he had intended only to go out into the night and wait near the ship until he was missed. But he'd found himself among the unknown beasts. He'd gone into a blind panic. Now he was lost indeed. But one could not refuse to search for him simply because it was hopeless. Cochrane could not imagine doing any less than continuing to search as long as Alicia had hope. She might hope on indefinitely. They heard the faint, distinct, incisive sound of a shot. Holden's voice reported it in the walkie-talkie. Cochrane nodded brightly to Alicia and fired a shot in turn. He was relieved. It looked like everything would end in a commonplace fashion. The party from the ship headed toward the source of the other sound. In half an hour Cochrane was about to fire again, but they heard the hysterical rat-tat-tat of firing. It seemed no nearer, but it could only be Johnny Sims. Cochrane and Holden fired together for assurance to Johnny. Bell took pictures. Again they marched toward where the shots had been fired. Again they trudged on for a long time. Seemingly, Johnny had moved away from them as they followed him. They breasted a hill, and there was a breeze with the smell of water in it, and they saw that here the land sloped very gradually toward the sea, and the sea was in view. It was infinitely blue, and it reached toward the most alluring of horizons. Between them and the sea there was only low-growing stuff, brownish and sparse. There was sand underfoot, a curious bluish sand. Only here and there did the dry-seeming vegetation grow higher than their heads. More shots. Between them and the sea. Cochrane and Holden fired again. "'What the devil's the matter with the fool?' demanded Holden irritably. "'He knows we're coming. Why doesn't he stand still or come to meet us?' Cochrane shrugged. That thought was disturbing him, too. They pressed forward, and suddenly Holden exclaimed, "'That looks like a man! Two men!' Cochrane caught the barest glimpse of something running about far ahead. It looked like naked human flesh. It was the size of a man. It vanished. Another popped into view and darted madly out of sight. They did not see the newcomers." He shot something like that back where we first landed, 
said Cochrane grimly. We'd better hurry. They did hurry. There was a last flurry of shooting. It was automatic fire. It is not wise to shoot on automatic if one's ammunition is limited. Johnny Sim's firearm chattered furiously for a part of a second. It stopped short. He couldn't have fired so short a burst. He was out of bullets. They ran. When they drew near him, a hooting set up. Things scattered away. Large things. Birds the size of men. They heard Johnny Sim screaming. They came panting to the very beach on which foam-tipped waves broke in absolutely normal grandeur. The sand was commonplace, save for a slight bluish tint. Johnny Sims was out on the beach, in the open. He was down. He had flung his gun at something and was weaponless. He lay on the sand, shrieking. There were four ungainly, monstrous birds, like oversized Cornish game gamecocks, pecking at him. Two ran crazily away at the sight of the humans. Two others remained. Then they fled. One of them halted, darted back, and took a last peck at Johnny Sims before it fled again. Holden fired and missed. Cochran ran toward the kicking, shrieking Johnny Sims. But Alicia got there first. He was a completely pitiable object. His clothing had been almost completely stripped away in the brief time since his last burst of shots. There were wounds on his bare flesh. After all, the beak of a bird as tall as a man is not a weapon to be despised. Johnny Sims would have been pecked to death but for the party from the ship. He had been spotted and harried by a hunting pack of the ostrich-sized creatures at earliest dawn. A cooler-headed man would have stood still and killed some of them, then the rest would have either run away or devoured their slaughtered fellows. But Johnny Sims was not cool-headed. He had made a career of being a rich man's spoiled little boy. Now he'd had a fright great enough and an escape narrow enough to shatter the nerves of a normal man. To Johnny Sims the effect was catastrophic. He could not walk, and the distance was too great to carry him. Holden reported by walkie-talkie, and Jones proposed to butcher one of the animals Johnny had killed, and put it in a freezer emptied for the purpose, and then lift the ship and land by the sea. It seemed a reasonable proposal. Johnny was surely not seriously wounded. But that meant time to wait. Alicia sat by her husband, soothing him. Holden moved along the beach, examining the shells that had come ashore. He picked up one shell more glorious in its coloring than any of the pearl-making creatures of earth. This shell grew neither in the flat spiral nor the cone-shaped form of earth mollusks. It grew in a doubly curved spiral, so that the result was an extraordinary, lustrous, complex sphere. Bell fairly danced with excitement as he photographed it with lavish pains to get all the colors just right. Cochrane and Babs moved along the beach also. It was not possible to be apprehensive. Cochrane talked largely. Presently he was saying with infinite satisfaction, The chemical compounds here are bound to be the same. It's a new world, bigger than the glacier planet. Those beasts last night, if they're good foodstuff, will make this place like the Old West, and everybody envies the pioneers. This is a new earth. 
everything so nearly the same. I never, observed Babs, heard of blue sand on earth. He frowned at her. He stooped and picked up a handful of the beach stuff. It was not blue. The tiny, sea-broken pebbles were ordinary quartz and granite rock. They would have to be. Yet there was a blueness. The blue grains were very much smaller than the white and tan and gray ones. Cochrane looked closely. Then he blew. All the sand blew out of his hand except, at last, one tiny grain. It was white. It glittered greasily. Cochrane moved four paces and wetted his hand in the sea. He tried to wet the sand grain. It would not wet. He began to laugh. I did a show once, he told Babs, about the old diamond mines. Ever hear of them? They used to find diamonds in blue clay, which was as hard as rock. Here, blue clay goes out from the land to under the waves. This is a tiny diamond, washed out by the sea. This is the last thing we need. Then he looked at his watch. We're due on the air in two hours and a half. Now we've got what we want. Let's go have hold and tell Jones to hurry. But Babs complained suddenly. Jed, what sort of life am I going to lead with you? Here we are, and nobody can see us, and you don't even notice. Cochrane was penitent. In fact, they had to hurry back down the beach to join the others when the spaceship appeared as a silvery gleam, high in the air, and then came swooping down with fierce flames underneath it to settle a quarter-mile inland. Bell had a picture of the tiny diamond by the time the ground was cool enough for them to re-enter the ship, the way he photographed it, against a background which had nothing by which its size could be estimated, the little white stone looked like a koinor. It was two transparent pyramids set base to base, and he even got color flashes from it. And Jameson, forewarned, took pictures from the air of the blue sand areas. They showed the tint the one tiny diamond explained. The broadcast was highly successful. It began with a four-minute commercial in which the evils of faulty elimination were discussed with infinite delicacy, and it was clearly proved, to an audience waiting to look beyond the stars, that only Gresham's intestinal emollient allowed the body to make full use of vitamins, proteins, and the very newest enzymatic foundation substances which everybody needed for really perfect health. There followed the approach shots to this planet, shots of the great beast herds on the plains, views of luxuriant, waving foliage, the tide of shaggy animals as they came at dusk to their drinking place, and there was an all-too-brief picturing of the blue-tinted soil, which the last film clip of all declared to be diaminiferous. Cochrane's direction of this show was almost inspired. The views of the animal herd were calculated to make any member of his audience think in simultaneous terms of glamour and adventure, with perfect personal safety, of course, and of steaks, chops, and roasts. The more gifted viewers back on earth might even envision filets mignon. The infinitesimal diamond with its prismatic glitterings, of course, roused cupidity of another sort. There were four commercials cut into these alluring views— the last was superimposed upon a view Bell had taken of the sunset colors. 
and it might have seemed that the television audience would confuse the charm of the new world as pictured with the product insistently praised. But the public was pretty well toughened up against commercials nowadays. It was not deceived. As usual, it only deceived itself. But there was no deception about the fact that there was a new and unoccupied planet fit for human habitation. That was true. And the fretting, overcrowded cities immediately became places where everybody made happy plans for his neighbor to move there. But the more irritable people would begin to think vaguely that it might be worth going to for themselves. The ship took off two hours after the broadcast. Part of that time was taken up with astrogational conferences with astronomers on Earth. Cochrane had this conference taped for the auxiliary broadcast program in which the audience shared the problems as well as the triumphs of the star voyagers. Cochrane wanted to get back to Earth. So far as television was concerned, it would be unwise. The ship and its crew would travel indefinitely without a lack of sponsors, but for once Cochrane agreed entirely with Holden. We're heading back, he told Babs because if we keep on, people will accept our shows as just another superior kind of escape entertainment. They'll have the dream quality of You Win a Million and the lottery shows. There'll be things to dream about, but never to think of doing anything about. We're going to make the series disappointingly short, in order to make it more convincingly factual. We won't spin it out for its entertainment value until it practically loses everything else. No said Babs. She put her hand in his. She'd found it necessary to remind him now and then. So the ship started home, and it would not return directly to Earth, or Lunar City, for a very definite reason. Cochrane meant to have all his business affairs neatly wrapped up before landing. They could get another show or two across, and some highly involved contracts would be haggled to completion more smoothly if one of the parties, Spaceways, Inc., was not available except when it felt like being available. The other parties would be more anxious. So, the astrogation conference did not deal with a direct return to Earth, but with a small, sol-type star not too far out of the direct line. The pole star could have been visited, but it was a double star. Cochrane had no abstract scientific curiosity. His approach was strictly that of a man of business. He did the business. There was, of course, a suitable pause not too far from the second planet, the planet of the shaggy beasts. They put out a plastic balloon with a Dabney field generator inside it. It would float in emptiness indefinitely. The field would hold for not less than twenty years. It would serve as a beacon, a highway, a railroad track through space for other ships planning to visit the third world now available to men. Ultimately, better arrangements could be made. Jones was already ecstatically designing ground-level Dabney field installations. There would be Dabney fields extending from star to star. Along them, as along pneumatic tubes, ships would travel at unthinkable speeds toward absolutely certain destinations. True, at times they could not be used because of the bulk of planets between starting points and landing stations, but with due attention to scheduling, it would be a simple matter indeed to arrange for something close to commuter service between star clusters. 
He explained all this to Cochrane, with Holden listening in. "'Oh, surely,' said Cochrane cynically. "'And you'll have taxpayers objecting because you make money. You'll be regulated out of existence. Were you thinking that spaceways would run this transportation system you're planning, without cutting anybody else in on even the glory of it?' Jones looked at him deadpan, but he was annoyed. "'I want some money,' he said. I thought we could get this thing set up, and then I could get myself a ship and facilities for doing some really original work. I'd like to work something out and not have to sell the publicity rights to it. I'll arrange it, promised Cochran. I've got our lawyers setting up a deal right now. You're going to get as many tricky patents as you can on this field and assign them all to Spaceways. And Spaceways is going to assign them all to a magnificent Space Development Association, a sort of chamber of commerce for all the outer planets, and all the stuffed shirts in creation are going to leap madly to get honorary posts on it. And it will be practically beyond criticism. And it will have the public interest passionately at its heart. And it will be practically beyond interference. And it will be as inefficient as hell. And the more inefficient it is, the more it will have to take in to allow for its inefficiency, and for your patents it has to give us a flat cut of its gross. And meanwhile, we'll get ours from the planets we've landed on and publicized. We've got customers. We've built up a market for our planets. Eh? said Jones in frank astonishment. We, said Cochran, Rate as first inhabitants and therefore proprietors and governments of the first two planets ever landed on beyond Earth. When the Moon Colony was formed, there were elaborate laws made to take care of surviving national prides and so on. Whoever first stays on a planet of full rotation is its proprietor and government, until other inhabitants arrive. Then the government is all of them, but the proprietorship remains with the first. We own two planets, nice planets, glamorized planets too. So I've already made deals for the hotel concessions on the glacier world. Holden had listened with increasing uneasiness. Now he said doggedly, "That's not right, Jed. I don't mind making money, but there are things that are more important. Millions of people back home, hundreds of millions of poor devils." Spend their lives scared to death of losing their jobs, not daring to hope for more than bare subsistence. I want to do something for them. People need hope, Jed, simply to be healthy. Maybe I'm a fool, but the human race needs hope more than I need money. Cochran looked patient. What would you suggest? I think, said Holden heavily, that we ought to give what we've got to the world. Let the governments of the world take over and assist emigration. There's not one but will be glad to do it. Unfortunately, said Cochran, you are perfectly right. They would. There have been resettlement projects and such stuff for generations. I'm very much afraid that just what you propose will be done to some degree, somewhere or other, on other planets as they're turned up. But on the glacier planet, there will be hotels. The rich will want to go there to stay, to sightsee, to ride, to hunt, to ski, and to fly in helicopters over volcanoes. The hotels will need to be staffed. There will be guides and foresters and hunters. 
it will cost too much to bring food from Earth, so farms will be started. It will be cheaper to buy food from independent farmers than to raise it with hired help. So the farmers will be independent. There will have to be stores to supply them with what they need, and tourists with what they don't need but want. From the minute the glacier planet starts up as a tourist resort, there will be jobs for hundreds of people. It won't be long before there are jobs for thousands. There'll be a man shortage there. Anybody who wants to can go there to work. And if he doesn't go there expecting a certified, psychologically conditioned environment, but just a good job with possible or probable advancement, that's the environment we humans want. Presently, the hotels won't even be tourist hotels. They'll just be normal hotels that exist everywhere that there are cities and people moving about among them. Then it won't be a tourist planet, and tourists will be a nuisance. It'll be home for one hell of a lot of people, and they'll have made every bit of it themselves. Holden said uncomfortably, It'll be slow. It'll be sure, snapped Cochrane. The first settlements in America were failures until the people started to work for themselves. Look at this planet we're leaving. How many people will come to work that silly diamond mine? How many will hunt to supply them with meat? How many will farm to supply the hunters and the miners with other food? And how many others will be along to run stores and manufacture things? He made an impatient gesture. You're thinking of encouraging people to move to the stars, to make more room on Earth. You'd get nice, passive colonists who'd obediently move because the long hair said it was wise and the government paid for it. I'm thinking of colonists who'll fight and quite possibly cheat and lie a little to get jobs where they can take care of their families the way they want to. I want people to move to get what they want in spite of any discouragement anybody throws at them. Now, shoo, I'm busy. Jones asked mildly, At what? The latest proposed deal, said Cochrane impatiently, is for rights to bore for oil. The uranium concessions are farmed out. Water power is pending, not for cash, but a cut, and, Holden said uneasily, There's one other thing, Jed. All your plans and all your scheming could still be blocked if back on Earth they think we might bring plagues back to Earth. Remember Dabney suggested that? And some biologist or other agreed with him? Cochrane grinned. There's a diamond mind. There are herds of what people will call cattle. There's food and riches. There's scenery and adventure. There's room to do things. Nobody could keep political office if he tried to keep his constituents from food and cash and adventure, even by proxy when they send expendable Cousin Albert out to see if he can make a living there. We've got to take reasonable precautions against germs, of course. We'll have trouble enforcing them, but we'll manage. Al called down from the control room. The ship was sufficiently aligned, he thought, for their next stopping place. He wanted Jones to charge the booster circuit and flash it over. Jones went. A little later, there was the peculiar sensation of a sound that was not a sound, but was felt all through one. The result was not satisfactory. The ship was still in empty space, and the nearest star was still a star. There was a repetition of the booster jump, still not too good. Thereafter, the ship drove, and jumped, and jumped, and drove. 
Jameson came down to where Cochrane conducted business via communicator. He waited. Cochrane said, Damn it, I won't agree. I want twelve percent or I take up another offer. What? The last was to Jameson. Jameson said uneasily, We found another planet, about Earth size, ice caps, clouds, oceans, seas, even rivers. But there's no green on it. It's all bare rocks. Cochrane thought concentratedly. Then he said impatiently, The whiskered people back home said that life couldn't have gotten started on all the planets suited for it. They said there must be planets where life hasn't reached, though they're perfectly suited for it. Make a landing and try the air with algae like we did on the first planet. He turned back to the communicator. You reason, he snapped to a man on faraway Earth, that all this is only on paper. But that's the only reason you're getting a chance at it. I'll guarantee that Jones will install drives on ships that will meet our requirements of spaceworthiness, or government standards, whichever are strictest, for ten percent of your company stock plus twelve percent cash of the cost of each ship, nothing less. He heard the rockets make the louder sound that was the symptom of descent against gravity. The world was lifeless. The ship had landed on bare stone when Cochrane looked out the control room ports. There had been trouble finding a flat space on which the three landing fins would find a suitable foundation. It had taken half an hour of maneuvering to locate such a place and to settle solidly on it. Then the look of things was appalling. The landing spot was a naked mass of what seemed to be basalt polygons, similar to the giant's causeway of Ireland back on Earth. There was no softness anywhere. The stone which on other planets underlay soil here showed harshly. There was no soil. There was no microscopic life to nibble at rocks and make soil in which less minute life could live. The nudity of the stones led to glaring colors everywhere. The colors were brilliant as nowhere else but on Earth's moon. There was no vegetation at all. That was somehow shocking. The ship's company stared and stared, but there could be no comment. There was a vast, dark sea to the left of the landing place. Inland there were mountains and valleys. But the mountains were not sloped. There were heaps of detritus at the bases of their cliffs, but it was simply detritus. No tiniest patch of lichen grew anywhere. No blade of grass, no moss, no leaf, nothing. The air was empty. Nothing flew. There were clouds, to be sure. The sky was even blue, though a darker blue than Earth's, because there was no vegetation to break stone down to dust, or to form dust by its own decay. The sea was violently active. Great waves flung themselves toward the harsh coastline and beat upon it with insensate violence. They shattered into masses of foam. But the foam broke, too quickly and left the surging water dark again. Far down the line of foam there were dark clouds, and rain fell in masses and lightning flashed. But it was a scene of desolation which was somehow more horrible even than the scarred and battered moon of earth. Cochrane looked out very carefully. Alicia came to him a trifle hesitant. "'Johnny's asleep now. He didn't sleep at first and while we were out of gravity he was unhappy. 
but he went off to sleep the instant we landed. He needs rest. Could we just stay landed here until he catches up on sleep? Cochrane nodded. Alicia smiled at him and went away. There was still the mark of a bruise on her cheek. She went down to where her husband needed her, Holden said dourly. This world's useless. So is her husband. Wait till we check the air, said Cochrane absently. I've checked it, Holden told him indifferently. I went in the port and sniffed at the cracked outer door. I didn't die, so I opened the door. There is a smell of stone, that's all. The air's perfectly breathable. The ocean's probably absorbed all soluble gases, and poisonous gases are soluble. If they weren't, they couldn't be poisonous. Hmm, said Cochrane thoughtfully. Jameson came over to him. We're not going to stay here, are we? he asked. I don't like to look at it. The moon's bad enough, but at least nothing could live there. Anything could live here. But it doesn't. I don't like it. We'll stay here at least while Johnny has a nap. I do want Bell to take all the pictures he can, though. Probably not for broadcast, but for business reasons. I'll need pictures to back up a deal. Jameson went away, Holden said without interest. You'll make no deals with this planet. This one you can do what you like with. I don't want any part of it. Cochrane shrugged. Speaking of things you don't want any part of, what about Johnny Sims? Speaking as a psychiatrist, what effect will that business of being in the dark all night and nearly being pecked to death, what will it do to him? Are psychopaths the way they are because they can't face reality, or because they've never had to? Holden stared away down the incredible, lifeless coastline at the distant storm. There was darkness under many layers of cloud. The sea foamed and lashed, and instantly was free of foam again. Because there were no plankton, no animalcules, no tiny, gluey, organic beings in it, to give the water the property of making foam which endured. There was thunder yonder in the storm, and no ear heard it. Over a vast world there was sunshine, which no eyes saw. There was night in which nothing rested, and somewhere dawn was breaking now, and nothing sang. "'Look at that, Jed,' said Holden heavily. "'There's a reality none of us wants to face.' We're all more or less fugitives from what we are afraid is reality. That is real, and it makes me feel small and futile. So I don't like to look at it. Johnny Sims didn't want to face what one does grow up to face. It made him feel futile. So he picked a pleasanter role than realist. Cochrane nodded. But his unrealism of last night put him into a very realistic mess that he couldn't dodge. Will it change him? Probably, said Holden, without any expression at all in his voice. They used to put lunatics in snake pits. When they were people who taken to lunacy for escape from reality, it made them go back to reality to escape from the snakes. Shock treatments used to be used later for the same effect. We're too soft to use either treatment now. But Johnny gave himself the works. The odds are that from now on 
he will never want to be alone even for an instant, and he will never again quite dare to be angry with anybody, or make anybody angry. You choked him, and he ran away, and it was bad. So, from now on, I'd guess that Johnny will be a very well-behaved little boy in a grown man's body. He said, very wryly indeed, Alicia will be very happy taking care of him. A moment later he added, I look at that set-up the way I look at the landscape yonder. Cochran said nothing. Holden liked Alicia. Too much. It would not make any difference at all. After a moment, though, he changed the subject. I think this is a pretty good bet, this planet. You think it's no good. I'm going to talk to the chlorella companies. They grow edible yeast in tanks, and chlorella in vats, and they produce an important amount of food. But they have to grow the stuff indoors, and they have a ghastly job keeping everything sterile. Here's a place where they can sow chlorella in the oceans. They can grow yeast in lakes, out of doors. Suppose they use this world to grow monstrous quantities of unattractive but useful foodstuff, in a way, wild. It will be good return cargo material for ships taking colonists out to our other planets. I suppose, he added meditatively, they'll ship it back in bulk, dried. Holden blinked. He was jolted out of even his depression. Jed, he said warmly, tell that to the world, prove that, and people will stop being afraid. They won't be afraid of starving before they can get to the stars. Jed, Jed, this is the thing the world needs most of all. But Cochrane grimaced. Maybe, he admitted it. But I've tasted the stuff. I think it's foul. Still, if people want it. He went back down to the communicator to contact the chlorella companies of Earth, to find out if there was any special data they would need to pass on the proposal. And so, presently, the ship took off for home. It landed on the moon first, and Johnny Sims was loaded into a spacesuit and transferred to Lunar City, where he could live without being extradited back to Earth. He wouldn't stay there. Alicia guaranteed that. They'd move to the glacier planet as soon as hotels were built. Maybe some day they'd travel to the planet of the shaggy beasts. Johnny would never be troublesome again. He was pathetically anxious now to have people like him, and stay with him, and not under any circumstances be angry with him or shut him away from them. Alicia would now have a full-time occupation keeping people from taking advantage of him. But the ship went back to Earth, and on Earth Jameson became the leading television personality of all time describing and extrapolating the delicious dangers and the splendid industrial opportunities of star travel. Bell was his companion and co-star. Presently, Jameson conceded privately to Cochrane that he and Bell would need shortly to take off on another journey of exploration, with some other expedition. Neither of them thought to retire, though they were well off enough. They were stockholders in the Spaceways Company, which guaranteed them a living. Cochrane put Spaceways, Inc. into full operation. He fought savagely against personal publicity, but he worked himself half to death. 
He spent hours every day in frenzied haggling, and in the cynical examination of deftly booby-trapped business proposals. His lawyers insisted that he needed an office. He did, and presently he had four secretaries, and there developed an entire hierarchy of persons under him. One day his chief secretary told him, commiseratingly, that somebody had waited two hours past appointment time to see him. It was Hopkins, who had not been willing to interrupt his dinner to listen to a protest from Cochran. Hopkins was still exactly as important as ever. It was only that Cochran was more so. It woke Cochran up. He stormed to Babs and ruthlessly cancelled appointments and abandoned or transferred enterprises, and made preparations for a more satisfactory way of life. They went, in time, to the Spaceways Terminal, to take ship for the stars. The terminal was improvised, but it was busy. Already eighteen ships a day went away from there in Dabney Fields. Eighteen others arrived. Jones was already off somewhere in a ship built according to his own notions. Officially, he was doing research for Spaceways, Inc., but actually nobody told him what to do. He puttered happily with improbable contrivances, and sometimes got even more improbable results. Holden was already off of Earth. He was on the planet of the Shaggy Beasts, acting as a consultant on the cases of persons who arrived there and became emotionally disturbed, because they could do as they pleased, instead of being forced by economic necessity to do otherwise. But this day Babs and Cochran went together into the grand concourse of the Spaceways Terminal. There were people everywhere. The hiring booths of enterprises on the three planets, now under development, took applications for jobs on those remote worlds, and explained how long one had to contract to work in order to have one's fare paid. Chambers of Commerce representatives were prepared to give technical information to prospective entrepreneurs. There were reservation desks, and freight routing desks, and tourist agency desks. Hmm, said Cochran suddenly. Do you know, I haven't heard of Dabney in months. What happened to him? Dabney, said Babs. She beamed. Women in the terminal saw the clothes she was wearing. They did not recognize her. Cochran had kept her off the air. But they envied her. She felt very nice indeed. Dabney? Oh, I had to use my own judgment there, Jed. You were so busy. After all, he was scientific consultant to Spaceways. He did pay Jones cold cash for fame rights. When everything else got so much more important than just the scientific theory, he got in a terrible state. His family consulted Dr. Holden, and we arranged it. He's right down this way. She pointed and there was a splendid plate-glass office built out from the wall of the Grand Concourse. It was elevated so that it was charmingly conspicuous. There was a chastely designed but highly visible sign under the stairway leading to it. The sign said, H. G. Dabney, Scientific Consultant. Dabney sat at an imposing desk in plain view of all the thousands who had shipped out and the millions who would ship out in time to come. He thought, visibly. Presently he stood up and paced meditatively up and down the office, which was as eye-catching as a goldfish bowl of equal size in the same place. 
he seemed to see someone down in the concourse. He could have recognized Cochrane, of course, but he did not. He bowed. He was a great man. Undoubtedly, he returned to his wife each evening, happily convinced that he had done the world a great favor by permitting it to glimpse him. Cochrane and Babs went on. Their baggage was taken care of. The departure of a ship for the stars, these days, was much less complicated and vastly more comfortable than it used to be when a mere moon-rocket took off. When they were in the ship, Babs heaved a sigh of absolute relief. "'Now,' she said zestfully, "'now you're retired, Jed. You don't have to worry about anything. And so now I'm going to try to make you worry about me. Not worry about me, but think about me.' "'Of course,' said Cochrane. He regarded her with honest affection. "'We'll take a good long vacation. First on the glacier planet. Then we'll build a house somewhere in the hills back of Diamondville.' "'Jed,' said Babs accusingly. "'There's a fair population there already,' said Cochrane apologetically. "'It won't be long before a local television station will be logical. I was just thinking, Babs,' that after we get bored with loafing, I could start a program there. Really sound stuff, not commercial. And, of course, with the Dabney field, it could be piped back to Earth if any sponsor wanted it. I think they would. Presently, the ship with Babs and Cochrane among its passengers took off to the stars. It was a perfectly routine flight. After all, star travel was almost six months old. It wasn't a novelty any longer. Operation Outer Space was old stuff. The End of Operation Outer Space by Murray Leinster